Hi Don and um, hi to the listeners and this is our fifth and final episode in series two of Invisibility which is the podcast that we we created a year ago now to tell stories and lift the lid on that group within the disability population that live with a cognitive impairment, developmental delay or intellectual disability, whatever language you want, which is one of the largest cohorts inside the disability tent but the least heard from. Don, how are you feeling today? i tell you what, Phil, I am very excited. I mean, I'm excited with oxygen most days. However, today's a big one. We've, we've got a superstar who has literally kicked doors down today, Phil, to uh, to be here with us and to give us a nanosecond of time to discuss some of the biggest issues in the media side of education. We do. We do indeed. And so let's get on to it. Uh, series two opens with uh, someone pretty impressive, Tanya Plibersek. And today we are closing with another celebrity. Please welcome to the studio, Naz Campanella. Naz, how are you? Hi, I'm coming to you from uh, currently the Sydney lockdown. Hopefully when this actually goes uh, up, we will no longer be in this position. Well, that's optimistic, isn't it? Have you seen the numbers from New South Wales? <laughs> yeah, you do know this is going to air about 500 days from the time we've recorded yeah. it. Has, so no. <laughs> I'm the eternal optimist. What what can I say? That's right. And uh, the sound is very good there, Naz. Are you in some, you know, Soundproof uh, sexy studio? ABC studio <laughs> or something like that? Uh... I'm actually in my spare room under a very lovely fluffy blanket oh, and um, hoping, hey. hoping that, that it all sounds okay. <laughs> Oh, it does indeed, Naz. Now, I tell you what, uh, thinking of, uh, of fluffy blankets and being comfortable, one thing that I think all adults would say is their childhood is typically thinking back some of their most comfortable times of their life, the most fun. I want to find out what was it like for you? What was your life as a kid? Can you take us right back to the start? Yeah, look, I lost my vision when I was six months old when blood vessels burst in the back of my eyes. So although I was born with vision, I was so young that I really, I I do not remember anything. Um, And so, so there was that. And then, um, I mean, my parents had never met anybody with a disability. They really didn't know much about, about the community and really didn't know much about the support uh, that would w- that would be around me, and so you know it, it was a bit of a nerve wracking time for them um, in the, in the very beginning. But all in all, I had a really lovely childhood. We I grew up in a very loud, big Italian family. Lots of cousins, lots of aunts and uncles, and we always went on holidays together and had big cook-ups together and things like that, a very traditional sort of Italian family. So very loving, very loud. Everyone had to pull their weight. There were no excuses for anyone. And um, it was a really wonderful childhood. Now tell me, is that when you say my, the blood vessels burst, like to me I'm just thinking the pain and, and or is it instant and then from then on you're just like, uh, or is there forever back to the to the hospital for operations? What type of childhood, like was it in and out of hospital or was it, mate, the damage is done, off you go? Yeah, look, the first two years of my life I spent in and out of hospital. I think I spent more time in hospital than I did actually at home. I actually don't have much of a recollection of you know, those early, early years, 
with hospital and treatments and transfusions and I had major operations, um, you know. So so it was, I think if I, you know, if I was sort of a bit older, it would have really stuck with me and been quite traumatic, um, particularly, you know, being in a, a medical sort of system and all that kind of thing. But I don't remember the pain. I don't, I don't remember any of that stuff. I remember... You know, I I had so many operations and it wasn't really until I was in my mid-teenage years where I actually said to my parents, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't, I'm very, very happy and I don't want to have any more surgeries. I mean, you know, my, my brother was born four years after me and he had the same condition and Wow. So at six months of age, the same thing happened to your brother? This, yeah, the same thing happened to him. So it was, a, you know, they were told after I was born that it was likely to be a, a sort of um, very small percentage, but but that it would be um, genetic if they had other, other kids. And it did happen to him as well. And I mean, for him, he was able to have access to laser surgery. It's It's pretty amazing what can kind of be developed in even the space of four years between our births. And so they were able to salvage a bit of his sight. He's still legally blind and wears quite sort of thick glasses and needs to look at things up close, but he has much more vision than me. Um, But, you know, there was no real reason for what happened or why or a way to fix it or anything like that. And so we were sort of guinea pigs for you know, many years with doctors sort of flying in from all parts of the globe, you know, wanting to have a look and poke around and prod around and do different experimental surgeries and all those sorts of things. And yeah, it wasn't until my sort of teenage years where I was just over it. I was, I didn't want to go through it anymore. And I, I never did. Um, and so I'm, I'm still quite traumatized by, you know, that whole scenario. Um, but you know, I just in the end said, I'm really happy. I don't actually care and I don't want to do this anymore. Um, and so thankfully my parents listened and, you know, here we are. Here we are. And it's a good thing that you're uh, you're in the situation you are now and you're, you're really comfortable and content. Do you think the one of the reasons that you didn't want was um, around perception, being asked questions, being other people's views, or was it all from you internally going, you know what, this is painful and annoying and I'm done? Like, what do you think? I had some memories of when I got older of, you know, um, fighting off doctors and nurses because I didn't want to go under anesthetic and, you know, being held down to have needles and things like that. Um, and I never wanted, never wanted all of that. It was horrible. And I've only known being blind and I'm happy. I've always, you know, there have been challenges obviously, but for the most part, I've always been extremely happy and thrived and had a beautiful, you know, family around me, great friends, great opportunities. And for me, it hasn't really made that much of a difference because I, I don't know anything else. And so, um, for me, it was just, why, why do I need a surgery to fix this? I, I'm really quite happy. I think that isn't it, isn't it a relief to get to that point of acceptance and Mm. sort of working with what you've got? I think I was always at that point. I think it was, you know, other, other people around me that that needed time to get to that point. Naz, uh, we're here today for your story, but listening to you actually reminds me a little of uh, there was a there was a, an Australian story on the wonderful ABC, of course, um, 
Uh, we'll get to the ABC film. We yes, will we will. ABC. It was about Mao's last dancer, and oh, that yeah. ballerina couple, and their daughter who was born deaf mm. and the cochlear implant thing and she was raised sort of in a hearing sort of world and then she uh, discovered her deaf roots and deaf culture and all the rest of it at a, at a teenager, a late teenager, and it was fascinating story seeing how that family had sort of resisted that deaf uh, environment and then embraced it and, oh, gee, the, the, there's the stories of disability, um, they are rich and powerful and compelling, aren't they? They really are. They really are. I, I wouldn't be uh, where I am uh, today without them really exactly so let's get into that and um you 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 uh you got through your early life and school and then let's talk a bit about school so uh, uh tell us a little bit, a bit about school and what led you to being a cadet journalist so i initially went to a, a special school and personally for my parents um they were really worried about me going to mainstream education they really worried about me not fitting in not keeping up with the work that that the right supports wouldn't be available uh so i started at a special school and i was really enjoying it i was learning um i was doing swimming lessons i was learning braille i was doing daily life living skills you know cooking and and all kinds of things to to make sure that i was you know as in, independent as i could possibly be and i went to this school from sort of three and a half, four years old. It was quite, quite young. And to be honest, I lived an hour drive away from the school. So I used to, there was a sort of community bus that would come around and pick me up and my mum would put me on there. And so no wonder I'm really independent. I was kind of heading off on my own at a really young age. But it wasn't long until my parents were sort of encouraged to have me transferred into mainstream education. And there were lots of different options. And that was definitely the best for me. Um, When I, you know, we tried a bunch of different schools and found, you know, the right one. And when, you know, we did, um, you know, we made sure that I had teacher's aides who would transcribe uh, material for me and make sure all the work was accessible, all the work that was given to everyone else um, that was given to me, but in an accessible format. Um, I really struggled with Braille at school. I was always really great at writing Braille and I was quite a, a smart kid, but um, I really struggled with the reading. And we found out when I was about 10 that I actually had a neurological condition called Charcot-Marie-Tooth or CMT, which affects my balance and my sensitivity in my arms, legs, hands, and feet. And so essentially I don't have enough sensitivity in my fingertips to feel Braille on a page. So, um, you know, it kind of, it kind of was good to get that diagnosis because it meant there was a reason why I was really struggling at school. And I had some teacher's aides who were really, uh, really quite nasty to me and, and saying things to my parents about me being lazy and not trying hard enough. And when we finally had that diagnosis, it meant that we could get rid of those teachers and, and get a bunch of new ones who really changed my life and introduced me to adaptive technology and voice-to-text technology, which is, you know, it's been a lifesaver for me. Well, I tell you what, Naz, listening to your story, there's a, there's a lot of things that jump out at me. And, and one of them is that's absolutely shocking for me is that I've always been of the belief because of the, the things that I've been exposed to. My parents uh, said to 
um, the school, you know, Don's going to uh, this school with his brothers and sisters and had that argument for me um, so that I could go to the uh, the public school with my brother and sisters. And then the other, the other option was to uh, go to a, a special school. And, and to be honest, I always was on the belief that the special schools weren't, they weren't for people with physical disabilities. So to hear that you went there and, and it was a great start for you, and then you had choice, that for me is a, is a great sort of reminder of the, the power of choice. How important, because we speak to people uh, often on our podcast, and, and some people have suggested that while there's um, special schools, then we'll never really have true inclusion. So what are your thoughts on the, the value of choice? Look, I'm a firm believer in, in full inclusion whenever and wherever possible. I, I think, you know, having people from all walks of life and lots of different, um, you know, disability and ability and cultures and all, all the rest of it is having everyone together teaches society overall about so many different aspects of life. But I think also on the other hand, choice is important because um, there are some people who uh, thrive better in different environments and feel feel more comfortable in certain environments. And um, I think so long as it's in the best interests of the person with disability, that is what matters. Um, but ultimately, I, 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 I believe in, in everyone being, um, you know, in, in a cohesive school, cohesive workplaces. I think, I think it's important from an education perspective because education leads to so many different things. If you're at school with people with disability, you're more likely to uh, invite them out to social events when you go to uni. You're more likely to employ them when you run a business. I, I, I think that's important. It totally is. And um, visibility or, or uh, um, being with people, we, we, we explored that theme a little bit yesterday with one of our other episodes, a mum, Julie Fisher, and her uh, son Darcy. And she was saying that um, when, when she had Darcy, it was their first sort of real experience in disability. And her parents were quite uh, nervous, weren't they, about oh, what are what are kids with what are babies or young kids with disabilities like, and what do they want to do? And and so she invited them along to just a carer's sort of play date sort of thing, where there are a bunch of kids running around, and and the, and the the grandparents went, oh, they just play like you know any other kids. <laughs> surprise, you know? surprise! They're just <laughs> like every other kid. That's right. is a window to the world and you can't be what you can't see and all those wonderful things so um naz it's been uh, uh wonderful to see as don and i are sitting here and we are obviously active in the sector and to see the abc and someone like you um, become so prominent and lead the way with disability stories and gee it hasn't been uh, short of disability stories the last couple of years naz with uh, royal commissions and everything else has it you know t- talk to us about your arrival at the ABC and your hopes and ambitions with with this job? Yeah, look, I've been at the ABC for 10 years now. I started originally as a cadet in the Sydney newsroom. After a long period of searching for work, I sort of finished my university degree and, and had done kind of four years of unpaid internships and work experience and all that kind of thing. And, and I never had trouble finding internships. 
I found that everyone was really quite keen to take you on and, and get you to do work for free. Uh, and I learned a lot. I, I started out, you know, helping make coffees to kind of cleaning the fashion cupboard right through to ultimately having articles published and doing interviews and, and all that kind of thing. So I finished university with quite a good CV and, and healthy looking portfolio. And so I was really excited about looking for work. And obviously I I knew that people with disability faced a lot of discrimination when entering the workforce. But for some reason, I thought it would be different for me because, you know, uh, you always do, don't you? You you, you think you've got a degree and and you've tried really hard, that'll be good enough. And and it wasn't. I I chose never personally to to disclose my disability in a job application. So I generally did get an interview because as I said, I'd I'd really stuck my, you know, my, my hand up and done lots of internships. And sometimes I'd walk into an interview and that would be the first time that someone would know that I had a disability um, by seeing my cane. And you could tell instantly that you just weren't going to get the job. You know, some people were quite overt about it and would say, you know, we don't we don't have a safe enough workplace for someone like you or how can you be a journalist when you can't see? And others would just make you feel terrible and not say anything, but you knew that you'd never get a call back. And I rarely got feedback about why I, you know, didn't get to the next round or didn't get the job or anything like that, um, not even a courtesy phone call. And then, so that was quite a depressing time, but then I finally got the job, um, uh, with the ABC. And, you know, that was the first time that anyone had actually taken the time to ask me about the kinds of reasonable adjustments or support that I would need to do my job and do it, you know, to the best of my ability to, to you know, like everybody else was expected to do theirs. And I think that's where I realized, hang on, there are workplaces here that are in really high pressured, really full-on environments and industries. And, inclusion can work when people actually want to make it work. And so I spent a year in the Sydney newsroom as a cadet and had all the, the right supports. And obviously, you know, things weren't perfect. They, they, you know, there were some people who didn't know um, how to support me, but, you know, we worked through it together. And I think that's the main, the main message that I would have for anyone that you don't have to have it all set in stone and perfect and, and right from the get go, but you just need to be respectful and listen and learn and, and that's what they did. And, um, you know, I've had all the experiences that, that other cadets have, have been afforded. I've gone to live and work in regional and remote Australia with the ABC. And I then read the news for Triple J on, um, you know, on, on Australia's biggest youth station for seven and a half years. And that was exciting because together me and the ABC pioneered a, a way for someone who was blind to read news live to air. And, then when that sort of came to an end, it was time to take on a new role and that's when I took on disability affairs. So in a bit of a long-winded way, that, that's how we arrive here. And it's been about oh, 15 months since I took on the disability affairs role and it's the most exciting, rewarding, exhausting, but most exciting role I feel like I'll ever do in my career. Well, I'll tell you what, Naz, it's a, yeah, a hell of a story and an even more impressive journey to, uh, you know, to get to that point to to accept that there are, there are ups and downs with everything we do in life and it's really nice to be able to get past the the, uh, the downs. Now, one thing that I know and we'll see it a lot and we've, uh, with the, the Paralympic Games in particular, every four years or typically every four years when they're on is we have Paralympians come out and say, don't call us inspirational 
professional, you know, call us an athlete because we're, we're pushing the boundaries, we're doing the best we can. Yet so often we see stories about people with disabilities or the disability space and those stories are inspirational stories. Like how much say in the stories and the angle of the story do you have as a journalist and, and how important is it for you to have, you know, well-rounded stories or is inspirational the way we should go to enlighten the public? No, I, I don't like the inspirational, you know, inspo porn to, to use that term coined by, by the late wonderful Stella Young. Uh, that's what I wanted to change in this, in this round. Um, when I set out to establish this disability affairs round, it was to bring disability into the mainstream. I wanted to have it across all platforms. I wanted to, ha- to have the stories everywhere. And I wanted to have people with disability front and center of those stories, telling their own stories, as opposed to, uh, you know, non-disabled people writing about them. And I wanted to really change the way that people with disability were portrayed. So from that inspiration porn type scenario, right through to just everyday issues that are being experienced by, you know, you, me or the next person, but, but show how it's affecting people with disability. And so, you know, you, you take an issue like COVID-19 and we're seeing lots of different stories. And so I've just gone, okay, how is this affecting the disability community? And there's just a multitude of ways that it has. And so, uh, you know, uh, I just find the right people to talk to and, and, and that's how we go about it. But in terms of how we portray people and the language that we use and all of that kind of thing, it is done in close consultation with people with disability and it's done in a, a really, um, you know, social model type scenario of disability. Um, none of this charity or medical model type stuff. It's uh, this inspirational porn thing. It's uh, we get it right uh, in the sector. I remember Naz starting in the sector about ten years ago, and and being inspired by some of those stories, of course, you know, <clears throat> but also sort of realizing that it, there was a problem with those stories because you know not everyone with autism is Rain Man, if you like, you know, <laughs> yes. in the movies, and, and you'd see these parents say that you know that tells you nothing about my my kid if you like, with autism. In fact, it probably gives you terribly false, misleading images, mm-hmm. you know, that, it, that people are capable of, of all those things because there's a spectrum with everything. And, um, you know, I remember Stella Young and people like her, uh, we'll get on to Stella shortly a bit further, but if someone's up having a dance on the floor in a, in a, in a wheelchair or something, people are coming over and saying, good on you and well done. And you, you, I'm so proud to see you up here. And, and they're going, just out. leave me alone. I'm having a dance, mate. You know? I'm just dancing or I'm just getting out of bed or I'm just, you know, getting myself to work. It's, it's those ordinary things, isn't it? That, that people tend to find. And I think really that's, that has stemmed um, out of a, a lack of awareness and knowledge that people with disability are doing the same things as, as non-disabled people. They are working, they are being educated, they are, um, you know, paying taxes, getting married, having kids, doing everything. But I think that's really, that's really at the crux of it. I, I want to make sure that, you know, you, you see people on TV, that you read their stories and that you, you see a different 
a different side of disability, the, the side that the people in this incredible community of 4.4 million people want you to see, um, which is how diverse each and every single one of us are and um, that we all have life experiences to share and they're incredibly valuable. You know, it's real reality TV. I mean, people talk about reality TV. Most of it is incredibly staged and distorted and manufactured and manipulated. Um, I think uh, disability has sometimes the truest stories of all and and they're so powerful and compelling. But I I want to go back, Don, and just bring you in on on something because Naz said she didn't tell people when she went for a job interview Mm. and sometimes not until she appeared that they realised and she could feel the, the, the change. Now, you're uh, missing a, a few pieces, if I can put it like that. <laughs> Absolutely. And did you, uh, you know, did you declare that, Don, in job interviews or do you have any stories about that? Yeah, I'll tell you, what, you when I, the second I heard you say about not declaring those, I thought, oh, that takes me back. I actually, my brother and I, were, I actually just copied whatever my brother did, perfectly able-bodied young man without my good looks. Whatever he did, I just said, well, I'm going to do that as well. And he said, I'm going to apply for the Army Reserve. I said, right, I'm in. So we went off to our training for Army Reserve and I wore pants and I just said, right, I'm not going to tell them about my leg at all. I'm just going to get through the physical because I've been backing myself in for this. And I got through everything and did pretty well, actually. And then I had my medical and he, and the doctor says, all right, I drop your, drop your strides. And I thought, I haven't told him about my leg. And and then, uh, and before he did that, actually, he said to me, he goes, all right, I, um, just take your shirt off. We'll just do your heart test and all that sort of stuff. And then he said, um, and so at this stage, I'm still sitting on the bench and I've got my pants on, but knowing that's coming. And he said, um, he turned around, I've got a big scar on my back from where I had open heart surgery as a young fella. And he said to me, he goes, oh, what's your scar for? And I said, oh, that's my heart surgery. And I had open heart surgery when I was about three. He goes, oh, geez, she didn't declare that. And you can sort of see that I took the wind out of him. And I go, well, you're not going to like the next bit then. <laughs> and, then uh, and then after that, he said, right, I, like he, he ticked all the boxes that I needed to. And I had to go and see the psych. That was the last bit. And prior to me seeing the psych in the, uh, in the interim, the, uh, the doctor had spoke to him. And the doctor was actually going to complain. He goes, this is one of the most fit bloody blokes I've got. And I'm not going to be able to put him through. So, yeah, it's, uh, sometimes it, uh, it works and sometimes it doesn't. But uh, definitely the disability can shock people, I would suggest. And I would think that you've probably shocked a few in your life. Have you ever had people come up to you on the street and just uh, just connect with you from their point of view like what what sort of experiences have you had yeah look I do I do regularly get lots of people coming up kind of you know after seeing a, a story I've done or something like that and they might have a, a a child with disability and they're struggling a bit with figuring out the best kind of uh, education or struggling with with whatever it might be and wanting some advice you know I've, I've been kind of held up a few times while I'm in the, you know, the, um, the fruit and veg aisle at the supermarket wanting to have, you know, people wanting to have chats and things. And look, I, I guess, you know, I, I realized that having a public profile means that you are a person who people feel like they can trust, they can talk to. And, um, you know, I, I, I really appreciate that because I, I do want to be a person who's, who's able to, to support people in any way that I can. I mean, you know, that stuff can sometimes be exhausting. I won't lie. Um, but, but, you know, my, my whole 
life I've wanted to be able to help other people with disability because there were times that I struggled at school, struggled with employment and and lots of other things. And I I just want to make sure that I that the next generation doesn't have to go through all of that. And so for me it's a it's a way of teaching people. I mean, I also do get lots of people coming up and saying really inappropriate things. Um, like, you know, the how exciting it is that I'm getting on the bus or picking up my cane without permission and taking it off the floor and because they think they're helping when they're really not or, you know, wanting to, you know, pray for a cure and all those kinds of things. And, you know, I, you know, I just try and use it as a way to explain to people um, that I'm really quite happy and, I, you know, I don't, I don't need prayers. I don't need different life. I don't, you know, um, yeah, it, it's, it's always used as a, as a lesson. This series is about education and um, it comes in so many forms. Every time Naz uh, helps someone understand things like that, right, that, that's all about education and uh, that's why the role Naz has with the ABC is, is so important. But, but Naz, you're a, you're a pioneer and you're building on some other work that was done and we did mention Stella Young before. Um, So let's go back to Ramp Up because I remember um, seeing Ramp Up uh, come to life at the ABC, um, which is a pioneer itself in this this area. And it was a gathering of all the disability-related content under a heading uh, called Ramp Up and Stella was the the face and and the voice of that. Um, How did you feel at the time, Naz, as you saw Ramp Up coming together and and, and and how did you want to build on that early work? Look, it was a really exciting time because it was the first time where many of us in the disability community felt like our voices were being heard and Stella was was able to pull that together and, you know, how amazing was that? Um, and, you know, I, I wrote for Ramp Up. I was in my early sort of university days and I had the privilege of being able to, to write and um, have feedback from her about stories and things. So it was, it was really good platform for me to get my voice out there personally as well. Um, I never had the privilege of, of meeting Stella. Um, but I was so fortunate that I got some feedback from her about my stories. And I guess for me, I, I, you know, was really sad when Ramp Up was no more. And, you know, I kind of plotted on with my own career and for a very long time and, and, did disability stories uh, whenever they cropped up and whenever I could on top of the, you know, the other work that I was doing. But I knew that with things like the Disability Royal Commission starting a couple of years ago and, uh, you know, there was a real time now where we needed, we needed disability to be really prominent again and we needed to be making sure that we told those stories in the right way with people with lived experience front and center. And that, that's why I wanted to, to really build on that incredible work that was, that was already started by Stella and the ramp up team. Well, I can tell you uh, firsthand with uh, Naz, with meeting Stella, I actually did an interview with Stella, with Kurt Fernley, with Kelly Cartwright. It was a, uh, it was a pretty cool day actually. And, and Kelly and Kurt, I knew pretty well through, you know, competition and hadn't met Stella before and we rocked up to the studio and uh, for someone who was so small she absolutely filled the space she had uh, plenty of energy plenty of opinions and I'm not one to take a backward step and uh, and so nor is Kurt Fernley and I'd suggest Kelly Cartwright's got a bit to say as well and 
honestly, that um, that engagement was probably the most raw, um, no holes barred interview that I've ever done. To be honest, it was uh, it was a real cracker because we just had four people telling it how it was and for me I was raised to to believe I didn't have a disability um I could do what you know my family were doing Kurt was the same thing Kelly lost her leg at 15 and then of course you had Stella in there who was just going you know what we're not fitting in we need to change the way things are being done so it was bloody fantastic and and I know that it, it takes someone like Stella, like the community to, to rattle the cage. But what it really needs is it needs more people like you that are continuing to pick up and go, hang on, we've actually started this. We've walked through the door. Now we've got to make it work and, and not just accept the tokenistic, okay, we've got a space for people with disability. It's like, right, we actually want more than just a space. There's an opportunity for, for inclusion. And I just, I really love what you're doing with your role and the fact that you're inspiring other people you you may or may not know it but through your through your appearances through your approach to say hang on it's okay to call for things call things out but also to change things yeah thank you don that's that's really lovely and i think you know i was i was actually speaking to kurt family i was talking to him recently and and we were talking about the we the 15 campaign that's just been launched um, with the paralympics and Kurt was saying, you know, this campaign needs to be successful because people need to look around the room that they're in, you know, whatever room it is, and they need to say, is disability here? And if not, why? And I think that is a real conversation starter and that's where you get real change, where you can rattle that cage and you can say, you know, what do we need here to actually reach a point of accessibility and inclusion? And so many people before me have started doing that, um, you know, like you, like Stella, like Kurt, and um, it's people like me that now need to, you know, do our bit and so that, um, you know, the next generation continue that work or hopefully they won't have to. But but it's all of us who need to, to contribute and um, and we are in, in real tangible ways. Um, I know that for sure. Well, Don, um, we couldn't have picked anyone better, I think, to uh, to finish on a straw. You want to finish at your best. It's not how you start, it's, it's how you finish. Yeah. It's all about crossing the line, Phil. Crossing the crossing line strong. The line. And, yes. and we've done it today. We've done it with an absolute superstar. So, Naz, it has been a, a ridiculous privilege for Phil and I to, to have you for a little while to enlighten us about your journey, around your, you know, n- not just your personal disability, and we certainly appreciate you sharing that story and the, the support that you had, your education, and of course this series all about education, but the value and the impact that you're having educating others with the work you do, we think is absolutely brilliant. So thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you to you both. Thanks for your time.